from Romans chapter 15. I will read the first 13 verses. Hear the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbors for his neighbor's good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have caused to be written all of these words, not only written but preserved, and for that blessing we give you thanks. We pray this morning as well that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that the Spirit which inspired these words of Scripture would also be the Spirit that illuminates our minds and causes the Scripture to take root in our hearts. We pray as well that your Holy Spirit would abide in this room, binding us one to another And drawing us closer to you, for in you alone is our hope, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So this morning, this Palm Sunday, uh, we continue in our series of sermons through Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been carefully working our way through this, the most theological book in, in all of the Bible since the beginning of 2018. And we're going to finish up. The second week of May, so the end is in sight. If you have ideas about what you would like to hear preached, I'll be preaching from the Old Testament uh, next, so let me hear from you. This morning I want to do something that I rarely do, but which I think is the best way for us to appreciate our text this morning. I want to talk through this passage with you verse by verse. So I would encourage you, those of you who are Baptists already have your Bibles with you, but for the rest of you, you can pull out a pew Bible and you might want to open that up because uh, we're just going to work through this uh, verse by verse uh, after I give a kind of introductory uh, gloss. So um, Paul's major theme 
in this passage that I just read for you, his major theme is a theme that he began at the beginning of chapter 14. Uh, and we might think of that theme being this way. How should the strong regard the weak? There's division and dissension in the Roman church. Paul reminds the church that the unity of the church is a sign to the world that we belong to Christ. For Paul, the lack of unity in the church is a major problem and it has to be dealt with. So what's the cause of the division and dissension in the Roman church? It turns out to be food and drink. It turns out to be nothing really very important. The lack of unity is important. But the cause of this division is in fact minor. Paul distinguishes between core beliefs, between essential doctrines of the church, the the doctrines that give the church its unity and identity. We are Christians because we believe certain things. And Paul goes over a number of those basic things in the first 11 chapters of this book that we've been working through. The first 11 chapters of Romans lay out the gospel. It's the fullest explanation of what the gospel is. Maybe you remember way back to the beginning of this letter where Paul announces, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking the gospel. Paul risked death. He traveled to the ends of the earth to carry this gospel to people he had never met before. He pours his life into this gospel work. Paul knew his purpose, he knew his mission, he knew his calling. It was to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. The gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Unfortunately, sometimes we Christians lose sight of the purpose and the mission and the calling of the church. Sometimes we underestimate the gospel, and we reduce the church to a mere shadow of its cosmic glory. Sometimes we think of the church as the place you go for self-actualization, as the place you go to live your best life now. That's a popular message. And certainly people do need an encouraging lift. Sometimes we think of the church as a coalition of people reforming society and fighting injustice. And many Christians are extremely committed to these causes. And sometimes we think of the church as a social service organization alleviating the suffering of the poor. And we do put our money where our mouth is. Tens of billions of dollars are spent each year by American churches to help the needy. Those are all important works of the church, but they're not the essential work of the church. And here's the crucial point. Without the essential work of the church, all the other works that the church does are worthless in the sight of eternity. The essential work of the church is helping people spend eternity with God. The essential work of the church is salvation. When Paul says that the gospel is the power of God... For salvation for everyone who believes, he means quite simply that the gospel is the path to heaven. Living our best life now 
is sweet. Reforming society and fighting injustice is noble. Alleviating suffering is right and it's kind. But what difference does it make if we live our best life now and still in the end spend eternity in hell? What difference does it make if we reform our society and still in the end our society and every other society on this planet will simply disappear? What difference does it make if we alleviate the hunger of the poor but fail to address the spiritual starvation of our entire culture? Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The core beliefs, the essential doctrines of the church of Jesus Christ are the ones that answer the most important question that any human can ask. What must I do to be saved? Those core beliefs, those essential doctrines are what give the church its unity, its mission, its purpose. We are the only organization on the planet who does this job. And on these essential doctrines, Paul is clear, Christians must agree. Beyond this core, however, beyond these essential doctrines, there are a thousand and one things that make up the ordinary life of a Christian. And on those non-essential things, Paul tells us to give each other leeway, to be welcoming, to be gracious, to allow liberty. That's been Paul's theme since the beginning of chapter 14. So now let's take a look at the text a little more closely. In verse 1, Paul begins, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now most ethical duties are reciprocal. They are duties that we owe back and forth one to another. I have a duty to respect your property. You have a duty to respect my property. That's a reciprocal duty. It's the same in both directions. But some ethical duties are not reciprocal. The duties of a parent toward a young child are not the same as the duties of a young child toward a parent. I have a duty to protect and to provide for my daughter Mia. But it is not her duty at this point in her life to protect and to provide for me. Now notice that in verse 1, Paul does not say that the obligation to bear with the weak is reciprocal. This is not a command for all people. This is a command for the strong. Paul says that those who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. And so when there's a conflict in the church over a non-essential issue... Each party in that conflict needs to figure out who's the weaker party. And the party who is stronger in his faith is the one who needs to make an allowance for the person who's weaker. Think of it as the tender care that a parent shows to his child. Because the parent is stronger, the parent accommodates and bears with the weaker child. Verse 2. In verse 2, Paul offers a general command to all Christians. He writes, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This verse should remind us of a verse that we read last week where Paul gives instructions about how Christians should speak. Paul wrote, 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The defining characteristic of Christian speech is that it benefits the people who are listening. It builds up the people who hear us. It's helpful, not to us, the speaker, but to the person who's on the listening end. In Romans, Paul pushes this injunction beyond mere speech. He pushes it to include all the things that we do. What we do, we should do not because it pleases us, but because it builds up our neighbor. And you remember who Jesus says is our neighbor. So imagine for a moment what your household would look like. What your marriage would look like. What your neighborhood would look like. If you did what you do, not because it pleases you, but because it's helpful to the people around you, because it builds them up. Imagine that just for a minute. That's the kind of world I want to live in. It's probably the kind of world you want to live in too. So why don't we see that world more often? I think it's probably because most people don't want to be the ones who are generous first. We're willing to be nice to people when people are nice to us. Christ, however, calls us to a higher way, to a selfless way. We're called to be generous without any guarantees that anything's going to come back. Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back. Imagine that as a banker's policy. That's tough. That's tough with people who are not our enemies, love, do good, lend without expecting anything in return. But it's so much harder even with those who are our enemies. Jesus' injunction regarding how we're to treat other people removes Christian relationships from the realm of economic exchange and business contracts. In business, people do good things for you. They fix your car, they give you groceries, they sing you a song because they expect something good in return. They expect you to pay them. Jesus calls us to a higher way. As Christians, our relationships are not based on economic exchange, but they're based on self-giving, selfless love. Verse 3. In verse 3, Paul points to Jesus as our model and the reasons we bear with the failing of the weak, the reason we please our neighbors rather than please ourselves. Paul writes, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The king of kings, and still he didn't please himself. The night before his crucifixion, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he, he's arrested, Jesus prays, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We take our names from our Master. We're called Christians in honor of Christ, and we model our lives on His life. As Christ did not act selfishly to please himself, so we too, we who are far less exalted than Christ, 
should not act selfishly, but rather should serve others. Verse 4. Verse 4 is a little editorial aside. It's a little comment that Paul throws out there, which breaks up the flow of his argument. It's a wonderful little point. He writes, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have hope. Paul, of course, is talking about the Bible. I hope you love the Bible. I hope you read it knowing that it was written for you. That it was written for your instruction. For your encouragement. It was written to give you hope. Paul, a little further down in this passage, quotes Psalm 69. B.J. read a chunk of Psalm 69 for us. And through reading the words of the psalmist, Paul is able to make sense of the life of Christ. He's able to make sense of his own life, his own life of sacrifice. When you read the Bible, read it personally. If you're a child of God, own it. It belongs to you. It was given to you. Let God talk to you through Scripture. Let Him instruct you and encourage you and give you hope. Verses 5 and 6, Paul bursts out into a doxology and he speaks a word of blessing. A word of instruction to us, his readers. Hear the word of God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we say to that except amen? Yes, may it be, Lord. In verse 7, Paul reiterates his one big message, the big message that begins in Romans chapter 14. Here it is, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul's beef with the church in Rome is that they were at each other's throats. They were not welcoming each other. They were causing each other to stumble in their faith. And so the corrective command is simple, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. As as Christians... When we are faced with the sin of someone else, we can never forget the fact that we are forgiven sinners ourselves. As Christians, when faced with strangers who need our help, we can never forget the fact that we were strangers who were welcomed and helped. Because Christ welcomed us, we welcome others. And Christ welcomed us for the glory of the Father, so we too welcome other people for the glory of God. Now, in every church, there are cultural and social and generational differences. Or at least there should be. God forbid that a church be filled with cookie-cutter people who all look alike and sound alike and think alike. Our unity is not in the way we look or sound or think. Our unity is in Christ. As Paul writes elsewhere, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If our unity is in the way that we look or the way that we talk rather than in Christ, then we are a club or a clan, but not a church. The church of Jesus Christ necessarily will be diverse because the church of Jesus Christ is called out from every nation and every tribe and every language. A sign of the health of this congregation, a sign of the authenticity of our faith will be not that we all look and sound alike, but rather that we all look different and still get along. In the church of Jesus Christ, the cultural and the social and the generational differences are not a cause of division. They say that variety is the spice of life. I pray that we would be a very spicy church. For the Roman church, the cultural difference, the churchy spice, was the presence side by side of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Just one generation earlier, Jews and Gentiles would have had nothing to do with each other. They would have never sat down to eat together. But now, because they're followers of Christ, these people who had been enemies, who were separated, are brought together. Not that that bringing together was easy or simple. Because the cultural and social differences were real. Because the old history between these two people groups was littered with tragedy and guilt and shame. And yet, in spite of all of that, something new, something amazing happens in the church. A new community overcoming old differences. A new community connected to something cosmic that God is doing throughout the whole planet. Make no mistake about it, the Israelites are God's chosen people. He has set them aside for himself. He has given them a law. He's given them an identity. He's given them a homeland. He has supernaturally and providentially preserved them in spite of the most insane and demonic hatred that any people have ever faced and continue to face. God's people have not only survived, they've thrived. But God also promised that the blessings of his people would not just be for those people, but it's going to be for the whole world. And that one day the world, the Gentiles, us, would sing the praises of the one true God who happens to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise finds its fulfillment in the church. Many Israelites followed Jesus, but so did people from every tribe and tongue around the world. The church is this crazy, mixed-up, polyglot, multicultural stew of humanity redeemed by God. The church is not a human invention. It is not a human creation. It is a divine and supernatural organism. And part of the reason that we know this is that such a diverse array of people who would never naturally sit together and make common cause together now call each other brother and sister. That's what happens in the church. Here's what Paul writes. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the, un to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Because of our backgrounds and histories and cultures, We quite naturally hang out with people who look like us and sound like us and think like us. It's just easier. But this tendency for birds of a feather to flock together is kind of boring, you have to admit. If we only hang out with our own, we have a diminished view of the grandeur of God's church. And the church stands uniquely in the world as an unnatural gathering of all kinds of people. It is my prayer that this congregation continues to become more diverse, more complicated, more interesting, and more representative. Not for any social engineering reasons. I don't care about that. This world is passing away. But because a more complex choir of saints singing to the glory of God brings God the honor and the glory that he deserves. Verse 13. Paul ends this section with another benediction. May this be a good word for us this morning. He writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The world's hope is a matter of probability. I hope it won't rain on the day my daughter gets married. It may rain, may not rain, but I hope it doesn't. Christian hope, however, is different because Christian hope is 100% certain. Christian hope is based on God's promises, which cannot fail. We have to wait for them, but their fulfillment is certain. Jesus said that he would return to the earth and that he would gather up his church. We continue to wait and hope for his return, but there's no question of probability or uncertainty about that promise. So what is the Christian hope? Well, that's where we began this sermon and where Paul begins his letter. Our hope is the gospel. Our hope is salvation. Our hope is eternal life in the presence of God in our real, physical, resurrected bodies in a city called New Jerusalem. That's our hope. That's the promise that Jesus made And that we wait for the fulfillment of. Because we wait for this great hope. Because we're in this period of waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of Christ. We have an easier time dealing with the troubles and the annoyances of this life. Our hope puts the irritations of this life into perspective. And having those irritations of life put into perspective, irritations that arise oftentimes by ordinary conflicting desires and the needs of regular people, 
having all of that put into perspective, allows us to not be anxious, to not be resentful, to not be angry, to not be agitated, but rather to be at peace. And peace, in turn, brings us what keeps us alive, which is called joy. Our joy, our joy in Christ. My prayer for us is that we would be filled with joy because we're at peace, because we have this hope which comes from being in Christ. Joy, peace, and hope. If you don't have those today, I invite you to come and speak with me, send me a note, give me a call, stop by my office. If you don't have joy and peace and hope, I I want us to sit together and talk through this. I want you to get this right. Nothing is more important in this life than getting right with God. Everything else you do is going to pass away. You need to get right with God. You can have peace with God. You can have joy in this life. You can have the hope of the life to come. All of those are offered to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we bless your name this day. And we remember that this is Palm Sunday. That Sunday when we sang your praises and sang hallelujah to the streets of Jerusalem only to turn on you a week later. This morning, Lord, we pray that having understood you more fully, that we would sing your praises truly and honestly. That we would sing your praises because you were worthy, not because of what you're going to do for us. Lord Jesus, you are now high and exalted, and you have the name that is above every name. And the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the honor of God the Father. We pray that you would continue to grow in us the faith to hold on to that hope. And we pray that in that hope that we might find peace with the circumstances of this life. This life which can be hard and and difficult and prickly and troublesome. We do live in a fallen world, Lord, but you have promised us peace even in this fallen world. You've promised us peace that passes understanding. Lord, sometimes we don't have that. And we pray that you grow up in us the faith that we need to have peace that passes understanding. We pray that in that peace we might find our joy. Big joy, fat joy, rich joy, juicy joy. That we might find our joy in you. Lord God, you are good and everything that you have made is good. You've made us. So we pray that we might live in the fullness of your joy this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.